1: I'm gonna read for you the closing line of an email that just came through this morning, which was about something completely different, but the closing line said, by the way, Athletic Greens was a good purchase. Thanks for sharing their product with your listeners, end quote. And that's exactly what we tell potential advertisers here is that this relationship will only work if it benefits all three parties, us, our listeners, and then them as advertisers. And if any one of us gets shortchanged on someone advertising here then there's really no point in doing it at all and athleticgreens.com surf has been a resounding success we all want optimal health we all want to achieve it in the most efficient way possible and that's why ag1 is so successful it is the best product of its type on the market a superfood packed with all of your nutritional needs made into a super drink that you can consume in about 20 seconds. That is it. You don't need to go to the store to get it. You go to athleticgreens.com slash surf once. You set up a monthly delivery and that is it. The resupply shows up at your door before you even need it and your 20-second ritual each morning fuels your day, fuels your success, and eliminates the daily stress or anxiety that you impose on yourself about your dietary decisions. So I could go on and on about the product quality and what's in it, but suffice to say, it is the best product on the market of its type, and you can check out all of the info on their website. Just make sure that you do it through our portal, athleticgreens.com surf, to support us en route to your optimal health, I am very grateful to have access to AG1, and I'm really proud to be able to share it with you. Athleticgreens.com/surf. Enjoy. Imagine wearing a suit and tie every single day, sitting in Los Angeles traffic while you make your way inland to a high-rise, riding the elevator up to your office where your boss constantly berates you. This is where you spend 40 hours a week and where you're planning to spend the next 30 years of your life. What would that do to your morale, to your self-esteem, to your childhood ambitions? What would it do to your overall health and wellness? Could you even be a productive employee at that point? And hopefully this doesn't describe you, but I think that we can all relate to some version of this. Maybe the version of life that you have settled for isn't that dire, but we've all probably fantasized about a radical life change and what we would do if we could do anything. Well today's guest has in fact lived that suit and tie life and then he turned his radical fantasy into a reality. And not for the sake of working less or avoiding responsibility, but in the pursuit of passion, doing something meaningful and contributing something of value back to the world that was unique to his skill set and to his life experience. And as a result, he's quietly become one of the most influential people in surfing, whom you've never even heard of. Fundamental decisions that he has made for his business have influenced where professional surfers have built their careers, where the now defunct magazines did photo trips for about two decades. It's influenced how CT athletes have made it to the destinations on the world tour. It's also influenced which spots around the world became desirable for you and I. So I wanted to hear about all of that. I wanted to hear about what surf travel looks like post COVID and also about the role that a surf travel agency plays in this modern information at your fingertips age where we can book things on our own. So without further ado, my name is David Scales for Surf Splendor, and here is my conversation with Waterways founder Sean Murphy, who, by the way, just returned from two weeks on Tavarua. So that's where we'll start our conversation. Enjoy. You just got back from uh, Tavarua, is that I did. right?
0: I, my family and I do a trip there every year for the middle two weeks in March. Okay. And it's just amazing. We've been going there since before they were born for that same time period. And we went there when my wife was pregnant with both the children. So basically, since before they were even one, they've gone every year except for the COVID years. And it's just so special. I mean, all the staff and everything. Have you been to Taberra? No. It's so special. It's, it's unlike any place I've ever been in that the staff are, I mean, people say it and you take it lightly and you just think, oh, really? Is it really like that? But they're like family and they are family. And there's generations of staff. Like the grandparents used to work there and now their children work there and now their children's children are working there. And it has that feeling of family. And because we go every year, they know our names. We know their names. They know the children's names. The children walk right up to them. They spend time with them. They have nannies that they've had there every year. And it's just phenomenal. It's like, it's like being at the best like summer camp ever, but you get to be there and watch it the whole time.
1: Yeah. That's an incredible tradition to be able to do for the kids. I mean, we, from a surfing standpoint, we think about the waves off Tabby, but um, obviously it sounds like a great summer camp for the kids too.
0: Well, there's a wave there called Kittyland that breaks yeah. inside of restaurants. So at a medium tide, when the energy comes over the reef at restaurants, it reforms into this like almost like Waikiki wave that every year there's people who have never been surfing before to get out there. And I tried to get my children out there this year, but they just wouldn't do it. But again, you can get out there and you can kind of stand. It's deep enough where you can stand sometimes and you can push the kids in on the soft tops onto these just rollers. And Fijians will sit on the inside and catch them before the board hits the sand. Wow. You know, it's amazing. amazing. And this year, we were fishing off, um, we were in the reef pass. So we we're in probably 70, 50 to 70 feet of water. But we were, 25 yards from the edge of the reef, which was three or four feet deep. And I jumped over because it was hot. And I got my little guy, again, it's five to put on his goggles and his little tiny flippers and jump over with me. He jumped over into 50 feet of water and swam over to the reef. And it was the first time he has seen proper reef and reef fish in their natural environment, which is getting more and more difficult anywhere around the world these days, seeing really live reef and i couldn't get him out of the water from that day for the rest of the trip all he wanted to do was be in the ocean looking at the fish
1: that's amazing yeah what an incredible first experience i I can't even remember the first time seeing stuff like that yeah even
0: if the surf isn't great you know if you have that family experience tied into it all it almost doesn't even matter
1: how was the surf it was good
0: yeah (laughs) um because we go for two weeks, we always manage to get some good days. Okay. And basically, I used we used to go for a week, and after the year after my first child was born, I realized that we need to do two weeks if I'm gonna get the same amount of surf I would have gotten in one week when I had no children. <laughs> and yep. what it does is it allows me to pick and choose my days and my times when I don't feel like I have to surf every session but uh it was good we got um i had two real special moments i had one moment where i got cloud break good cloud break, like really good cloud break, all to myself for probably 40 minutes which almost never happens because even if you'd have at least one buddy go with you you know normally it'd be at least two yeah. but uh i went out there because I saw the wind conditions change, it was blowing north wind, and it just changed to th- southeast, and people were having lunch, and I'm like, I'm grabbing a boat, I'm heading over there, and uh, it was good, I'm like, wow, this is kind of a little bit creepy, surfing all by myself, because it was totally. blowing offshore, and you know, maybe some 10-foot faces coming in, and uh, the other one was, I got a great day at Tavaroa rights. Which a lot of people don't know about, but or don't think about so much when they go down there. But it's a great wave. And if the winds are blowing north, it can be super fun, you know, not intimidating, really long right hander. And I got to surf it with Dave Clark, you know, the founder of Tavarua and his daughter Roxanne, just the three of us out for three and a half hours trading waves. It was amazing. I and mean, people often ask me, like, oh, I heard it's so crowded down there. I heard it's so crowded down there. It's, you know it can be at times. Um, the worst scenario is if you have a small swell and strong Southeast trade winds, then the only place to surf is cloud break and okay. it gets crowded. But if you have any kind of swell and variable winds, which is one of the reasons I like what people think of as the off season, but really anytime from October through April, May um you get those variable winds and all these different spots break you know all the right handers break and you can have five breaks or or more all breaking at once it just spreads everybody out and people you know people can really most people are really only surfing four hours a day somewhere between two and a half four or five hours a day so you just kind of I mean, yes, I've gotten to know it. I gotten to know the kind of transition of people in and out, when people are having lunch, and all that. So I, I might work it a little bit better than some, but you can get some really uncrowded surf out there. I do every year.
1: Did you um, did you hear Alex Gray's story about being quarantined on Tavarua for eight months?
0: Um, I heard of it. I haven't heard him tell the story, but well, my wife and, I and family were there when it shut down. And Alex oh, were you? Yeah, Alex was there. And it got to the point where we were going to extend our stay. We were watching the whole world shut down. The whole world was melting down around Tavara. We're like, how we should stay here. And we extended our stay. And then the announcement came out that if you don't get out by Sunday, you're not going to be able to leave. My wife were going, God, do we want to get stuck here? The world's melting down. What if we can't get home? What about the Fiji medical system? What if it gets into Fiji and the medical system gets overrun? We're here with our children. So we pulled the cord and, and changed back and, and came home. But in hindsight, 2020, I would have stayed.
1: Totally. Because yeah, Fiji Alex did get out of
0: control. Fiji handled it really well.
1: Yeah, Alex had a similar kind of quandary. But he the circumstance of his home life in California allowed him to kind of gamble take that gamble right he knew he could be gone uh indefinitely but i did a podcast with him uh right after he got back i'll send it to you oh yeah i'd love uh, to hear, I to hear it i worth, really like Alex he's a great guy it's worth listening to i mean he was going through kind of a phase in his life where mm-hmm. it really like that time alone allowed him to re- reassess everything and realign his values but he also got super duper fit he realized pretty quickly if I've got cloud break to myself, I want to be able to surf it eight hours a day when it's good. And I'm going to need to get fit.
0: Wow. And he was never he was unfit. Fit before.
1: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you should have seen, he showed me the photos of like his body's transformation throughout the eight months. And he left the Island looking just insane. Like really? a superhero. Oh,
0: wow. good for him. Yeah. yeah
1: I don't know well, if he's been it, able to maintain it
0: for me every year. When I go like January 1st of every year, cause I go on like March 5th every year. I'm like, I gotta buckle down,
1: man. I gotta try to get shape. I know, I know. I know. You need that reminder every once in a while. Um, so we'll get into the founding of waterways, but okay. prior to that, you prior to founding waterways, you were an accountant. I Correct. cannot think of a more different lifestyle.
0: Um, yeah, well, it's it's interesting in going to school. I mean, obviously, I've always loved the ocean. I grew up a surfer. I mean, I, I didn't learn at five years old like kids are nowadays. I didn't start surfing until. Uh, I think it was summer between sixth and seventh grade. So I would have been what about 11, 11 years old, but um, i always loved the ocean. Uh, went to community college and thought I was going to become a biologist because I really enjoyed biology. And I was a marine biology major for a little bit. And I, teachers can make such a difference. I had a marine biology teacher. I'll never forget a Mr. Tarvit. And he was the best, most inspirational teacher. I'm like, this is what I want to do. I want to save the oceans. And I don't know if this is the right mindset or not. I just threw in the towel, but I started going on research expeditions um, on boats and places and realized that most of the people that I was working with on these boats were working for next to nothing or volunteering their time. I'm like, wow, do I want to go to college for four or five years and graduate and then be volunteering my time? Like, no, I don't want to do that. And I always liked math. So I decided I got into economics. And then that was much too much theory. I wanted something, once I started doing really well at college, because I wasn't a great student when I started out, I wanted something that had a really practical application. And that's why I love math, because there was clear rights and wrongs. And accounting was the area of focus that I saw I could apply the math to a skill set that was directly employable, you know? It wasn't a poli-sci or something that had such a broad spectrum of stuff. I like, if I get a business degree in accounting, I'll become an accountant. And I did that. And I liked the experience of getting that. And I still do like math because of the definitives in it. But um, I went to, work my first real job uh, working in Century City, you know, the penthouse in uh, an accounting firm up there wearing a suit and tie every day. And unfortunately, I think I had a bad employer. Actually, I know I did. Just like a good teacher can make the difference, a bad employer could really make the difference. And he was ruthless. And he, I was the first one in every morning. I was the last one leaving every day. And he was a yeller and he'd yell at me for this and that. And I just hated my job. And I tried to stick it out because to become a CPA, you need to have two years of practical experience and pass the CPA exam, which is a four-part exam. Okay. And I stuck it out my two years. And after a year and a half, I took my CPA exam and I passed three of the four parts, which is not unusual. Which totally fine. I was actually happy with that because you can, you can take just the retake just the parts you didn't pass. And then, uh, six months later or five months later, after taking a prep course, it was the taxation part that I didn't pass. Uh, I was continuing at work, absolutely hated my day to day. I was literally looking at my days as my start of my day to lunch. I'd have lunch, lunch to the end of my day and just didn't get a it didn't match up with the people I was working with the other employees. I took the, um, the taxation part of the exam again, and I didn't pass it again. And, you know, I was distraught. I was borderline depressive. Uh, I had developed an ulcer and hated going to work every day. And one day at lunch, I'm like, what am I doing? I hate this. I was looking at the surf every day on my way to work. I'd drive down the coast highway. I'm like, I'm this isn't right, and I just went in and I quit. And um, he blew up, you can't quit this and that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. but it was the best thing I ever did. Uh, unfortunately, my father was extremely disappointed, as both my parents are Irish immigrants who came to the United States with $250 in the mid 50s. I basically came home and told my dad, who was really upset, um, because my older brother and then I were the first two people ever in the Murphy family lineage ever to have college degrees and be wearing a suit and tie. My dad thought, my son's made it. He's wearing a suit and tie and going to work in an office building. Uh, my father was in the travel business. So after uh, the accounting uh, position, I bounced around for a few different accounting positions in um, private companies. And I kind of enjoyed that because I enjoyed the people I work with. I had some nice bosses. Um, One of the companies I was working for closed down. And then I went to work for my father who had a large travel company, a company called Brendan Tours, one of the largest wholesale tour operators in the United States. And uh, long story short, I was being groomed to take over as um, kind of chief financial officer of his company. Even though I had a few people above me at that point in the accounting department. And uh, I actually enjoyed that because I got a good introduction into the family business. My dad always kept us involved in the family business. I'd always been traveling. And I did that for a couple of years. And I was about 28 at the time. And I was having lunch with my sister. And my sister's like, What are you doing, Sean? I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't really know what I want to do in life. I was, I was still felt like I didn't have a good direction because my older brother was clearly going to take over uh, the company, my, my father's company, okay. when, it, when it came time. My brother and I are very tight. We're best friends. And I could see myself someday working alongside, but as the ladder goes under my brother, I'm like, I don't know if I want to do that. And I'm still pretty young. I don't know what I want to do. And my sister said to me, I'll never forget it. We were at lunch. We we're at a little diner in the Valley. And she said, if you could do anything you wanted right now, what would you do? You're still young. You don't have a family, you don't have any huge commitments. You could do anything you want right now. I thought about like, I would just surf and travel all over the world. That's what I love doing. I'm happiest when I'm doing that, but I'm no way near enough, good enough to be a professional surfer. And I have to make money to do that. And it was her suggestion. She's like, why don't you start a travel company? using some of the connections you have through dad's company and you know see how that goes i thought about like you know what that's a really good idea because this was pre-internet you know nobody knew about where to surf in tahiti and tonga and samoa and all these places i had been traveling already with a backpack for for years and all throughout south central america and stuff and uh i put together a business plan and i went into my dad's office and his big desk. And I sat across from him at his big desk. And I said, dad, I have an idea. And I want to present you a business plan. And because of my background, I was able to put together a a good business plan. And I presented it to him and he thought about it. And he said, I said, I said, dad, this is what I need. Here's my business plan from you. What I would like, it was like, I had like $20,000 of seed money to get started. And I'd like a cubicle to set up as an office space. And he said, okay, I'll tell you what. I don't think surfers have any money and that's never going to work. But I like your passion about it. I will lend you the $20,000 and I'll give you the office space. And when you fail, you will come back to work for my company and stop complaining about not being happy at your jobs because you just got to buckle down. Not everybody's happy every day they go to work and you just got to buckle down and work hard and make money. I said, okay, I'll do that. And I had him paid back his $20,000 in nine months. And Good for never, you. Never, wow. looked, never looked back. And my father was never really one to say job well done. But I heard from many people that he was very proud of me. And he would tell all his friends at Functions about what his son was doing and how he started this company. And I would say for solid first 10 years, my dad was just expecting it to fail one day, but yeah. uh, it, it did it. And he was very proud of me. And I moved out, I got my own office space and got employees and you know worked the magazines and the connections through all the magazines and then tried to harness the power of the internet when it first started. And when it first started for me, it was an excellent tool. And then over time, it kind of became competition. And, you know, we just learned to uh, live and adapt.
1: So you started the company in March 1994. Right. Can you tell me, for surfers who are reading magazines, learning about these, you know, far-off places, what were their options? uh, What were their travel options for accessing those spots at that time? there
0: there was one company... that was advertising in the magazines at that point called Morris Overseas Vacations or Morris Overseas okay. Travel that was doing almost strictly Costa Rica fly drive programs where you, they'd okay. tell you an airline ticket and or get you a rental car and give you vouchers for 20 hotels up and down the, the Pacific and Caribbean coast and off you'd go. So that was one option that was out there. I think they started a couple of years before I started uh, and doing, again, exclusively Costa Rica. When I started, I jumped on that Costa Rica bandwagon right away because I saw that as an inexpensive, op- easy option. But really, my very first offerings outside of that was um, Fiji, Tonga and Samoa. So that was a little trifecta we put together right off the bat and with an island hopper pass through Polynesian Airlines. And back then, I mean, Fiji, Tonga, and Samoa were extremely exotic. I mean, people, uh, the culture down there, they didn't have really much infrastructure for general tourism, especially in Tonga and Samoa. Fiji had a little bit. So that was really when we launched in 94 our five pieces of product. And we quickly added to that two pieces which were um, really the jumping point for us, our our growth, our real growth, which was the Maldives and Indonesia. And the Maldives uh, was an amazing uh, opportunity for us because there was very little surf opportunities or operations in the Maldives at that time. But there was a man, a gentleman, and I'm sure you've heard his story, And unfortunately, he has passed, but a podcast on him would have been amazing is Tony Hussein, who was shipwrecked in the Maldives and decided to, when he saw the writing on the wall after living there for 15 years surfing by himself, that surf travel was going to start in the Maldives, he decided to be the one to start it. And he started it with a company in Australia called Atoll Adventures. And between Tony and a gentleman by the name of Ian Lyon at Ethel Adventures, they were basically running a really good Maldivian surf program and they were happy with what they had. And there was no internet at that point. It was fax. It was a fax machine. So I was communicating back and forth by fax with Tony saying, look, Tony, I'd really like to you know, start selling into your program You know what can I do to do it? And he was kind of brushing me off and saying, "Talk to Ian in the in Australia if he wants to do business with you, you can do business through him." And you know we're but basically we're all good. We don't need anybody else. You know Tony, I didn't have any big aspirations. He was family. He was happy with his family making the money he had going. And um, Ian and him were best mates from a a younger age. So I basically uh, I got married my first marriage and. Flew down and went to the Maldives on vacation I was on my honeymoon. And I went down there and I rocked up to Tony. I'm like, Tony, it's me, Sean Murphy. We've been talking. I really wanted to get to know you and know this product. And Tony and I hit it off right away. And we made an agreement on our surfboard, Surfing Pasta Point. The typical board meeting, as they say. And okay. over a handshake and agreed that Waterways would have the exclusive to sell um, Cinnamon Donvilly, which was actually just Donville Resort at that point, to the U.S. market. And I would work with Ian in Australia to do that. So I got um, a grip on the U.S. market for that on a product that they, have, they had exclusivity um, to a wave called Pasta Point, and they still do. And to this day, on that handshake, that even after Tony has passed, and I now know his children who have taken over, that agreement still stands. And amazing. that's been a a cornerstone of our operation.
1: That is amazing. Can you tell me, um, you talked about those first, those initial offerings, Fiji, Samoa, Tonga. What are the fundamentals? Uh, Like what are you, what deals are you um, setting up in those locations? Are you flying there and it's a contract with a hotel, with an airline, yeah. with whatever? Um, and then how would, do you
0: advertise that? I would fly that? down there and I would get a car and I would drive all around the country and I would find out if there was a surf operation, uh, if it was good and if it was reliable and if they could communicate. Cause that's, I mean, even today, that's a huge one with, the, with my industry, with my business is that we need to have good, quick, clear communications. You know. So, somebody can't call us up and inquire about a trip and us respond to them 10 days later and say, right. Oh yeah, I finally found out if there was space. I mean, in today's environment, everybody expects things to be instantaneous. Uh, but even back then, you know, a day or two was pretty much as long as people wanted to wait and, and everything was fax transmissions and, and dealing with people who a lot of times have never really had jobs before in these kind of subsistence living environments. That was a big hurdle communication. So I had to find somebody generally that had some type of Western background so they could speak the language, um, had uh, knowledge of the surf, uh, of the culture and the community and the protocols to get to surf these different locations uh, and not um, conflict with any customary um, land rights and all this kind of stuff. And once I found that operation and a couple times it ended up being a like a resort or a small hotel because there was no surf operation, and the hotel had the communications. So I set it up through them. And other times there was some uh, surf operation there. And I would I said to them, said, look, here here's who I am. Here's where I've started. I'm, I' I'd bring some of the magazines with me. I'm, I'm an advertising in surfer and surfing magazine, which were really the outlets at that point. And this is what I'm trying to do. And what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna go back to the United States and advertise your product. And you know they had very, very little business coming from the United States back then. They had a little, a little bit of backpacker business and a little bit of Australians. Australians were traveling more so back then, but there was nobody promoting these people around the world. People had to really work to find them. So I said, I would like an agreement that when I get back, I'm going to have the exclusivity to promote your product in the United States. Because as I promote you, other people are going to try to find you directly. From my advertising, they're going to come to you directly. I, when they come to you directly, I want you to say, We have a partnership. And that's the way I always looked at it as a partnership. I didn't want to be like a the feeling of it, just a separate entity. I wanted to have a close relationship with these people. So they would send it back to us and that's how we would grow the business. And that worked really well for a long time. And yeah. we would just, their businesses would grow, our businesses would grow. And, you know, everybody was really happy with the, with the way it went. And for years, Because there wasn't really anybody else doing it, we had a policy at Waterways where we would never have more than eight people in one place at one time. So we would often have business that we were turning away or trying to get to go at other times because I didn't want to have, you know, book a group of four guys to go down there and have uh, already 10 of our guys be there. And I go, God, there's 14 guys here. It's crowded, you know? So we tried to really manage the 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 pressure on the surf as well, but as business grew and the internet grew and everybody wanted more and more business, um, it became clear that if I wasn't taking that business, somebody else was going to take it and send the people down yeah. there. So yeah. we still try to manage that to some degree in certain areas, but, um, it became a losing battle. Uh, again, it was one of those things where I said it earlier, where the internet was a great tool when it started and over time became competition.
1: Of course. Um, how do you pick and select new locations to add to your guys' portfolio? Because it sounds like a lot of work going out down there and doing all that. Leg it work, is, but
0: that's the fun more, part. You know, that's oh, the, well, of course, of that's course, the, that's the exciting part, because one of the things even to this day, and I always laugh when I see so many businesses have come and gone since we started and I see them start and they'll have this giant list of all these places they offer. I'm like, they can't know all those places, you know. Yeah. We don't sell anything that we haven't been to a number of times. We want to know exactly what goes on in the airport when you come through. How do you get from the airport to the boat or, or wherever it is that you're going? You know, who's the transfer driver? What kind of bus are they driving? Uh, when you get there, we want to know the ins and outs. Which way do the currents go? What kind of the why the reef pass like? Does it pinch on a, when the swell goes more east or, you know, does it stay open? Does it, is it a wave longer when it's more from the west and, you know, what are the hazards and who are the lifeguards and, and all the ins and outs, you know, because we are the source of the correct information. And so in choosing locations, you know, we, over the years, I mean, I've had, I would say hundreds of people come to us and say, Oh, you should sell our product. Maybe even thousands. I don't know. So many, you should sell my product. You should sell my product. I'm like, I don't have time to get down there right now. And I'm not going to sell it without vetting it first and getting to know it and know that you're going to do a good job. Or you're not some fly by night operation. that's just going to fold up and disappear or, you know, have a kitchen that's not clean or the big one that I always was I turned down a number of locations until they could satisfy uh, our marine safety requirements. You know, if you don't have, you know, some combination of backup engines and, and radios and cell phones and fuel filters and anchors and or, or life jackets and stuff on those boats when you're going out, I'm not going to work with you. I mean, the number of times we went down and it was just some guy with a 40 horsepower on a tinny when nothing you know, like, yeah, I'm not going to send my people down here in that because bad things happen at sea. Right. So we have, we had standards, but, uh, you know, once we got our core bit of business, like the, another one of the first ones I did was my, my first trip to Indonesia, you know, would have been in, uh, 95 or 96. And, I went down there to see, what are we going to sell in Indonesia? And I knew about GLAN or GarageGon, obviously, at the time. So I want to go down there and experience that and learn how you get in and out of GarageGon, which even today is much the same as it was when I went. Although there are fast boat options, but it's a mission to get to GarageGon. I don't know if you've ever been, but you got to drive across Mm -hmm. Bali. You drive onto an overnight ferry, you take the ferry to Java you drive across Java, you wake up in this little dirt lot in in the middle of nowhere on the edge of this river where you wait for the tide to be right, where you get in these boats so you can get over the sandbar to go across Garagegon Bay to get to Garagegon on the other side. And you know, I wasn't gonna sell that until I knew exactly how that whole operation worked, until I could try to figure out how to get the drivers to slow down and not kill people on those crazy roads. And, but with that, um, you know, I scouted some properties in Bali and I did my first yacht charter to Lombok and Sambawa. And we came back, we were able to sell Lombok Sambawa charters, GLAN, and stays in Bali and any combination of that when we first started. But what was a huge success was we sold a package that was a seven night Lombok Sambawa charter, a three night stay at GLAN, and three nights in. In Bali. So all together, it was a uh, 13 night. It was two weeks, including air. We sold the air package and packaged it all up. And wow, what a great experience that was for people. You know, back then, yeah. I mean, again, it was pre-internet. People didn't know how to do that and what to expect. And it was so exotic and so adventurous. And it, it still is, but especially, I mean, I get jaded. I got to think of it for people who are doing it for the first time. Yeah. It's still so exotic.
1: Totally. Well, I was just thinking, obviously, GLAN's on tour this year. um, Mm -hmm. I know, know, but I'm thinking, how many of the actual tour surfers have ever even been there? I mean, Kelly, for sure. For sure. But I I don't know of any others that I've seen there, you know? So that'll be super interesting. because
0: don't follow their travel very much, but they don't travel too much outside the tour program. So
1: you're probably right. I mean... I mean, there's in the 90s, in that mid 90s era, that was, I mean, it was on tour, right? Yeah. Quicksilver was doing yeah. videos that were there. So you kind of got it, got in there probably at the exact right time, but it's fallen out of fashion. I think just because of the um, all the things that you explained in terms of getting there, mm-hmm. it's a little more challenging in work than it is to go elsewhere. You know?
0: Yeah. And it's interesting that you say that it's fallen out of fashion because I think that's a, a perfect expression. Uh, you know, as the Menowise became the place to yeah. go and the cool yeah. place with all the different options, um, over the years, the Menowise now has quite a bit of pressure from boat charters and land camps and, and, and such. And G Land is now oftentimes less crowded than the surf in Bali or the Menowise. And it's a yeah. phenomenal wave. Oh, my goodness. Of course. Yeah, I can't wait to see it. That was one of my favorite events watching it. The reason they canceled that was because um, of the big riots. There were big riots in Jakarta. Um, And it was an insurance thing where the um, ASP just couldn't require the athletes
1: to go. Gotcha. Um, Because we were handling a lot of that. Oh, were you? Yeah. Uh, Back to you building the business, who was the first employee that you hired? And what was their role?
0: My first employee was a gal named Wendy Headley. And I poached her from my dad.
1: Oh, my gosh. uh,
0: Because she was and still is and still works for me today, uh, an airline specialist. And you've probably seen people do computer programming, where they're putting in all these slashes and dashes and asterisks in these weird formats that you just don't know how they know how to do that so quickly. Um, the airline reservation systems over the years have become much more user-friendly and are Windows-based or point and click, just like you're using your, your desktop. But if you know the, all the commands and can do it the old way, You can do it much more quickly and burrow down into the systems to find all types of information. And Wendy has that expertise. She is a whiz when it comes to airline reservations. And in the beginning, in the very beginning, that's why I hired her. She had experience working for my father. And before that, she worked for um, uh, Pleasant Hawaiian Holidays, uh, which was a a huge operator. Still is. Pleasant Hawaiian, a huge operator to Hawaii. So it was Wendy and I, uh, she was doing all the air and I was doing all the travel and talking to everybody. We had a typewriter. We had one phone on like a 20 foot extension (laughs) that Wendy would go like, let me transfer you and hand the phone across the room to me. And, uh, yeah, that was that was a great times. And then we grew. We had this little office that's smaller that was smaller than the office that I'm in now. Uh, and we hired another person, um, Christina. And our office was so small; it was probably about a third of the size of the office that I'm in now. It was tiny, wow. barely fit our two desks. That we poke, we push a hole in the wall to <laughs> make it like a, It was like a to-go window, and Christina's desk was on the other side. Uh, and then we, um, we just grew. We had to hire more people. We, we moved.
1: Amazing. I I left
0: the nest. Uh, I left the nest from my father.
1: Yeah. I'm just thinking like in terms of growing the business, doing the R and D to find the new locations is obviously where you would want to be spending your time, not doing the accounting or the reservations or any of that stuff. But But I was doing all of it. I mean, and it'd be difficult to do that stuff from the road efficiently and timely and all that sort of stuff. So that's where hiring, I would think, would become essential.
0: You yeah, know? it was essential. And once I had two employees that I knew could at least handle the reservation side of things, uh, because back then when I would go on those trips, I was out of communication. You know, I totally. would leave the office and say, I'll be back in two weeks. Yeah, if it's an emergency, totally. try to send this person a fax and then they can get me on the radio Yeah. It was that kind of, it was that kind of thing. And I actually a number of times did do a ship to shore radio call to a phone dispatch to try to to get in communications. Wow.
1: Um, You already alluded to it a little bit, but talking about how the internet was your friend and then it's kind of become a competitor. Mm -hmm. I think you explained early in the business, the value that you guys added aside from booking things is all of the information and right. the, yeah, the re the R and D that you would do, um, so that the user, it seems like the value that you guys add is that the user can kind of guarantee all, but guarantee good waves, safety, plush accommodations mm-hmm. or whatever. Um, so as the information is now available to people who want to do the time to poke around the internet, is has the value that you add changed in any way? Or how do you uh, compete I with think
0: it? I think it has changed. Yeah, of course it has to some degree. Um, I think where a lot of our value comes from now is one, we are looked at as being a very stable company. I mean, we weathered COVID no problem and the number of travel companies that that shut down because of COVID, just because they couldn't, you know, they couldn't manage. Um, w- we give people the piece, I mean, we have a lot of repeat clientele. Our our core market are all repeat clientele that come to us from that have been traveling with us, some of them for over 20 years. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're trusted. And people know that if they send us their money, it's they can be assured that one, it's going to go to a reputable operator and the people we, we represent are, are you know, solid operators that aren't going to disappear. But there's still a lot of people are going to look and find that product on our website and try to go to them directly. But, and, and we do, that happens. That happens all the time. Um, oftentimes, that person will send them back to us Um, especially because let's say you call us and you want to go to uh, Red Frog Bungalows in in the Caribbean. I've been there. I'll I'll be like, okay, David, um, let me check to see if that space is available for you. I'll email um, our guy down there. Say, look, we're looking for space on these dates uh, for this guy. And then you contact him directly and he'll go, oh, I see you already contacted Waterways. So because of our relationship and our, uh, that partnership that we've developed, just in, in all fairness, they'll go, you know, i call them back directly. They've already done all this legwork, you know, and got you to call me. You should finish it up through them. And I want to, again, go back to the partnership aspect of things and how I know other people who have run their business when they've started up and gone to all the people a number of times, I've had like a guy at Kandui Villas call me up and say, hey, Sean, this guy just called, he's setting up a travel company. He said he's a friend of yours and that we should give him all our rates. I'm like, what? No, 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 no. (laughs) And um, they come, these other people come with contracts and say, look, here's a contract. It's a three-year contract. This is this, this is this, this is this, this this, and this is how it's going to work. And We don't have that with really any of the people we represent. We have relationships. And with a lot of people, we have agreements. We have like a partnership agreement that says, you need to let us know if something's going wrong on your side before we send you passengers down. We need to know you need to supply us marketing materials and things like that. Um, This is what we will do. But in the end, if you don't want to work with us, just tell me and we'll, we won't work together. And if we don't want to work and on the same side, if your operation starts becoming crummy and our passengers are complaining, I'm not going to continue to send you people. Yeah, You know, I don't, and you know, if I have a, a contract with somebody in Tonga, Am I really going to try to enforce a legal contract and say you have to do business with me with somebody in Tonga? No. Yeah. you know I, yeah. I want to be I want to have friendly relationships with these people and have them see value in our operation and for me to see value in their operation and have a symbiotic relationship where we work well together. And you know, back um, to the internet, what what value do we do we provide? We're trusted. People can send us their money and know if something goes wrong, they'll get it back. If yeah. if, if they go on vacation somewhere and something does go wrong, and if we do enough people every year, things are going to go wrong. I mean, we've had things go wrong. terribly wrong. And some more often than not, it's really not our fault. And oftentimes not really operator's fault. It's just things happen. Things break down, boats break down, you know, whatever it might be. But if somebody comes back to us and says, Sean, that trip you sent me on really kind of went to hell in a handbasket. You know, I, it, it was terrible. I expected this and this and this, and I got this and this and this, and it's apples and oranges. You know, we'll make it right. I, I, yeah. I think, and I'd be interested in this broadcast, if anyone can con- say something to the contrary, call up and let us know. Um, you'd be hard-pressed to find somebody that thinks they were done wrong by waterways
1: that's good you know um yeah your reputation as far as i know is glowing you know stellar and i'm good friends with scott bass who used to work at surfer oh, magazine and yeah, he yeah. said he was working it, working yeah. with you way back in the day yeah as well. great guy um, those, all
0: those guys at surfer magazine were instrumental in getting us started
1: oh okay yeah, yeah. i would imagine yeah totally. scott
0: Tom Survey, Jeff Devine, all those photographers, Flame, all those guys were so nice to me when I got started because you couldn't get images off the internet. I couldn't call the guy I was working with in, you know, Costa Rica and say, hey, can you just send me a dozen good photos from the last week? Because they didn't have them. There was no digital photography.
1: RealWaterSports.com is our retail partner for all of your surf needs. I will link to this from our website, but check this out. Community traction pad and board sock combo. Normally, 98 bucks are on sale right now for $20. That's 80% off, 20 bucks for the traction pad and the board sock together. That's on realwatersports.com. I, of course, like I said, link to it from our website. Uh, That's just one smoking deal. In terms of surfboards, they've got a couple of IPA Modern Stings built in dark arts construction. Those are 17% off. Uh, They come in a variety of sizes. So they probably got one for you. They're shipping surfboards around the world daily, each for a low flat fee. They have surfboard review videos to help guide you or their staff is available. They're knowledgeable, available to answer any questions, but just poke around the website a little bit, fantasize, check out those sale items. They've always got a few heavily discounted gems. Um, just because they have a lot of inventory, so they're making way for new stuff. So you can kind of add those on to a surfboard purchase or whatever you need, but you'll always find these collaboration boards that they do with surfboard shapers, like the IPA Dark Arts stuff that I was never even planning on purchasing, but I go there to their website, I see that, and I'm like, man, that fills a gap in my quiver that I didn't even know existed. So, you can find your next surfboard and everything you need at realwatersports.com for all of your surf needs. Realwatersports.com. Enjoy. When you're hiring for a small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role, and there's no faster or effective way than through LinkedIn jobs. totally free. That's linkedinjobs.com slash surf to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Um, the other thing that's changed in that 30 years, almost 30 years, I guess that you've been doing business is you talked about pioneering or kind of doing the initial developments in some of those Mm -hmm. places in the world. Now those places, a lot of them are overrun. Um, How have you navigated that element? Have you received pushback from locals uh, in terms of over-exploiting surf spots?
0: um, A little bit of pushback from locals. Uh, I won't get into real specific locations, but I had some serious pushback in Tahiti, uh, which is you know, certain times localism works, which is one of the reasons we do not do business to a, a couple specific key spots in Tahiti because the pushback was so strong. I actually—it's a funny story. I had this guy he goes his, his nickname Stickman. His first name's Jeff. Okay, I won't give his last name because I want to protect the innocent. But in case he hears that, he'll know who he is. He went to a place in Tahiti, one of their more remote islands. And we were friends. I traveled a bunch with Jeff. And Jeff was an explorer just like me. He'd go all over the place. So he was on on this island, and he mentioned that he knows me and they were friends, which was the worst thing he could have done. The locals got him and brought him to a phone booth and made him call me in my office. And he, I'll never forget the call. He's, hey, Sean, this is Jeff. hey Jeff, what's up? He's all. Well, I'm in a phone booth now surrounded by local Tahitians and they wanted me to call you and tell you that if you ever send people here, they're going to have a really bad time and they're not going to have any surf and they might get beat up. So you might want to stay away. And I'm just the messenger and they're being kind of cool to me, but they just wanted me to call you. I was like, whoa, okay. So we never did business there. And I had another friend who actually lives in Huahini now. And he bought a boat a long time ago with the idea of running uh, fishing and surfing charters around Tahiti. And he's like, oh, I know Raymana, I know this guy, I know Smitty, I know all the locals. We're all friends, they're all at my house all the time, barbecuing up, we're all super friends. Yeah, we can uh, we can run small group charters, six people at a time on my boat, and we'll do uh, Huihini and Raiatea on my boat. I'm like, are you sure? Because I already had a kind of run-in with some locals down there, and I don't think we could really do this. There. No, no, it'll be great. It'll be great. I'm like, okay. So we, we start doing business. Our our third group, which he accepted and said it wasn't going to be a problem, was a group from um, uh, Longboard Magazine. And so we get Longboard Magazine down there. It was like the third day of the trip. Uh, a fleet of Tahitian war canoes <laughs> out of his boat and say, it got a little bit more heated than this, but basically say, you will not operate tours here anymore. Wow. And that stopped it right there. Yeah, no of course. But um, in most places in Central America and Indonesia, um A lot of the local community saw a lot more value. You know, these were places that didn't, for the most part, have a lot of infrastructure for general tourism. So these people were seeing opportunity. You know, there in later years there was a more of a host of local surfers, but in early years, there were not many local surfers. So these local surfers that were there saw opportunities to get jobs within the industry. And jobs for their family for cooking and housing and and all that. And there are now so many places around the world that I wouldn't say are surviving on surf tourism, but that's the cornerstone of their economy.
1: Yeah. So, so well, it, yeah, it's I, interesting. I, you get this like,
0: people, but more well,
1: I you do see a niche, I mean, over thirty years. Um, their perspective is going to change, right? Like early on, they would be grateful for it because they know what it was like without it. Mm -hmm. But now there's a second and maybe a third generation of youth coming involved who maybe has resentment towards it. But I really do suppose the difference in how they manage that or perceive it is the partnership. Like the type of business that you're sending them, if they're respectful, yeah, grateful, want to give back, want to participate with mm-hmm. the community, then it would be a lot easier to appreciate them right. as opposed to teenagers on spring break blasting music and breaking right. things. Yeah. And
0: that is something that we've really tried to do in most of the areas, I would say all the areas that we have any real core business, you know, because there's certain destinations like the Galapagos. We send maybe half a dozen people to the Galapagos every year. It's not a big destination for us. But any destination we're sending a lot of people to, we really try to do things, and we don't do this to get gold stars for it. We just do it because it's the right thing to do. We do things for the local communities, for the soccer clubs, for the schools, for the you know the cl- local clinics. And we try to do things to give back to all these areas. And it's nothing we've ever promoted through waterways. We don't do Maybe we should do a blog about what we're doing for these local communities and stuff, but, you know, I'm not doing it for that reason. I'm doing it for the right do.
1: I don't know that you would need to necessarily promote it um, the, the on your website or... No. And if you're you're traveling, if your customers know too, I think that's key. If your customers go to those communities and see the benefit that you're bringing and they do that, that translates and travels, you know,
0: we've probably Um, sent about 60 people from our local village in Samoa to college. No way. That would have never had that opportunity.
1: Like actually paying college tuition.
0: Yeah. We, every year. Up until you know a little bit before COVID or when we got wiped out by the tsunami, um, we would work with the local village school and the children that, the children that excelled the most that had the opportunity to continue their education, which re, which meant getting into a pia, which is an hour bus ride away. We would fund all that and make it happen make it happen for them. Incredible. And as long as they kept up their grades in college, we would continue to pay. As
1: That's incredible. Um, you
0: know, we built, how we did built you, a clinic in in on Roti Island and and supplied it with medical equipment and we bring doctors through and we supply for things to the school and help them when they're building a the school we help fund it.
1: Amazing you know, things like that. Um, you talked about surviving COVID when so many other travel companies did not. How were mm-hmm. you able to? Um.
0: It was a combination of things. One, um, we were really lucky that over the years, um, I have left a fair amount of money in retained earnings in the company. I didn't draw all the money out of the company every year. So we had a big fat bank account going into COVID, which for the most part, we do not have anymore (laughs) because we had to uh, persevere. And we only laid off, really two people. And one person um, resigned right at the beginning of COVID. But I kept everybody else on and on Amazing. almost full salary through the through the whole thing. And wow. there was there was a probably a lot of time in that first year, where it's like, what are we doing right now? I mean, what can we do? I We can clean up our file cabinets. And we're like, We're really at a loss. What we were doing mostly was because nobody knew that COVID was going to last two and a half years, you know, from the beginning, everyone thought it was going to be over in three months. Yeah. All the whole time. It was like, Oh, three months will be better. Oh, we'll be over this in three months. And that's why I'm still have a hard time being confident that we're coming out of it right now, because I thoroughly believe for so long after three months, would be coming out of it, so we were still taking bookings, and there were a lot of people in March of 2020 that were like, "Oh, this thing's going to be over. I'll book for July," you know, right. by or, or August for the end of the summer. So we were taking bookings, and for so much of our time, what we were doing was managing all those cancellations, because depending on the destination and the timing of the booking and the timing of the cancellation. Sometimes we're able to refund people, but oftentimes we're only able to give credits where we had sent the money already down or at least the deposits down to hold the space wherever it was around the world. So it has made our accounting extremely messy and difficult. And now we have, you know, really the bulk of it happened between March and I would say July. Uh, late March and mid-July of 2020, because people book with us well in advance. I mean, we do get a lot of short bookings that like people see us well and want to jump, but a lot of times bookings we'll get them six, eight months in advance. So those people come March. We're all paid in full for us to for travel, you know, up through July. And then all the new books we're taking, deposits we're taking, we had to just manage all of that. And we're now working through it all. And again, I don't think, except for exception of a couple people, um, anybody's really been disgruntled with the way we handled that money situation. You know, there was a lot of people that were just like, give me my money back. I can't go. I'm like, yeah. I don't have your money, I can't give it back, but trust me, it's good and it's in credit. And the ones I felt really bad for, and I probably shouldn't say that I don't wanna get out or come out the other side, because I don't wanna start a flood, but there were people that called up and say, I'm not going to be able to go. When, when this comes back on, I've lost my job. I have people yep. who are sick in my family. So even when COVID's over, I'm not gonna be able to afford to go anymore and on some of those there was only very few of them we just refunded the people and i talked to the operator i gave him a sob story and i said look if if we could fill that space with somebody else i'll refund them if you'll let me hold the credit and i'll put somebody else's name on it later you know so we were able to do stuff like that
1: yeah i mean and every step of the process though from that operator to the client Everybody's uncertain on where their next paycheck's coming from, when right. this will get opened up, all that. So nobody wants to be the one holding the bag. But if everybody kind of shimmies and adjusts a little bit, hopefully, right. you know, everybody well, can all be happy industries at the end. Hit, um, I'd say the travel industry was
0: really the one of the ones hit the most. I mean, initially I felt so bad for all the restaurant tours and restaurants that are all shut down. Nobody can go to oh, the yeah. restaurants anymore. Well, at least the restaurants were able to do adapt and do to go food and do outside dining and things like that, where, I mean, Samoa has been closed and I built Solani Surf Resort. Samoa has been closed for now over two years with no sign of reopening. No one in or out.
1: Why no sign of reopening?
0: Because they don't want to open up. (laughs) I mean, as the rest of the world opens up. Samoa has very little infrastructure for general tourism. Much of the country is subsistence living, and they get a lot of aid money. They're okay. still getting their aid money. The people who are subsistence living are still subsistence living the way they were. It hasn't affected them at all. They're like, "Got it." We don't want to let this into our into our country.
1: Yeah. Well, um, kind of a couple of closing or wrap-up questions. Mm-hmm. Can I ask how old you are?
0: I'm 57.
1: Uh, what's your current relationship like with surfing? How often are you surfing and all that?
0: Um, I surf as much as possible when it's good. Unfortunately, I said this to somebody the other day. I'm my own worst enemy. I talk myself out of surfing all the time. I'll look at it and go, "Ah, it's too crowded. The wind's on it. The tide's not right. I talk myself out of it. But um, I surf probably here at home in the United States on average over the course of the year, probably twice a week okay so not a time um, not the everyday guy but when it's good I'll surf every day
1: right. and
0: when it's not good for long periods of time I don't surf I've I up until COVID I would travel usually about six to ten weeks a year
1: oh that's not um, too bad I thought you'd be six to ten months a year or something
0: no I'm in the office man I've, I'm, I'm okay. still selling and, and answering people's emails and and you know doing all that stuff. and i enjoy it i mean i feel honestly like the luckiest guy in the world i've got a great family i get to do six or ten weeks of surf travel vacations a year i mean
1: yeah you know, that's crazy
0: we don't get that type of vacation time and well, i still enjoy my doc my job i mean i like talking to people on the phone and getting them pumped up for surf trips because everyone's so excited and i'll get guys still that'll come back from a trip And this happens maybe not every day, but at least a few times a week where somebody calls up and goes, Sean, you just sent me on that trip. I was down in Roti and I had the best time and I was talking to Greg one day and he told me about the spot. We went to the spot. There was nobody out. And he was telling me all. And literally the story will go on for 20 minutes leading up to how he got this best wave of his life. And I love it. I absolutely eat it up. And I don't know anybody who's been in the same job for as long as I have that still loves what they do. The only thing in my whole career of waterways that I have not enjoyed is dealing with COVID. All the other issues like boats breaking down and airlines being grounded and volcanoes disrupting travel and all that kind of stuff, that, that kind of stuff I've always looked at as part of the job. And my dad once told me, when you're having those issues, if you focus on that issue, and do the best you can to protect everybody you can who's traveling and just do it work your hardest to get it done time will come and go and it, that that issue will come to pass and you can look back on it and go I did the best I can and as long as you know you did the best you can everybody will be happy and that tells you true
1: in a certain way those challenges are what make the job fun and interesting yeah if it was easy you'd get bored by it probably
0: yeah yeah, probably, and yeah. I still like kind of looking at not so much new destinations, but new product in destinations. And every now and then, a little bit of stuff comes along that's a sniff at a new destination that I, I find exciting.
1: Yeah. So, where in the world have you not gone that you want to go for surf travel, or or for travel in general? Actually,
0: um, I have never been to the Caribbean. Um, I, I would like to get out and, and surf in the, in the Caribbean. I haven't done um, a, really much of West Africa. I, I would like to get into West Africa, but I've been. I mean, I'm so lucky. I've been to a, a lot of places. And Africa is one of yeah. my favorites. I mean, I, I've, I've done um, South Africa and I've done Mozambique. And I tell people of all the places I've been around the world, most of the places we focus on are going to have beautiful beaches and clear water and palm trees and have that similar tropical feel and look to them where Africa is just so different. The culture, the topography, the surf, you know, the animal life, everything is so different there. I still feel like for somebody who's traveled as much as I have. I feel like those experiences to me are new and exciting.
1: Yeah, and I feel like um uh, certainly outside of South Africa, it's a lot less crowded than other surf destinations too, oh, right? Sure. You can find tons of empty points.
0: Yeah, it says you got to um take into consideration the safety factors of different locations.
1: Right, of course. Um what uh how does how and what does retirement look like when you love your job that much do you ever envision yourself retiring and considering that you get to travel 10 weeks out of the year um
0: not anytime soon i don't think but um i think what would happen is eventually somebody will take over and i'll get into more of a consulting position maybe yeah you know i travel more as long as travel more maybe just handle you know do a little bit less on the on the phones with people and on the emails, answering emails and that little less of the paperwork stuff and more of the relationship things with, uh, with the resorts.
1: Gotcha. And,
0: and I actually, I mentioned to you that I built Solani surf resort. I'm still a a significant shareholder in that. I also built an umbrella beach resort in, um, on roti. And I, I own 90% of that. And over the years I've owned various yachts, and run yacht charters around the world. So I, some of the product I sell into is my own product. Um, yeah. I'd like to get more involved on the product side. Gotcha. I really, I really enjoy that. And if that side is done right, you know, there's, there's more margin in that. It can be yeah. more, more, lucrative. The travel business is, is again to bring back uh, something from my father. Um, the travel business is a nickel and dime business. You know, we have to do volume to make any money. We're not making a yep. huge amount of money off any one passenger, you know, um, where if the product is run well and you have to keep your occupancy up, your um, the margins on that side are better.
1: Gotcha. And it's an asset, right?
0: And it's an asset. It's a hard um, asset. So. hard asset in many ways. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. uh, it's a hard asset. Especially if it's a, a difficult boat. asset right
1: um whose boards are you riding
0: uh right now i ride um mb michael Barron michael burn b-y-r-n-e uh shaper out of oceanside and i like him a lot i was riding you know nothing against channel islands but i was riding channel islands boards for years and then i think i just started riding the wrong boards for me and i was feeling like it it was funny i met uh mb and I was explaining to him how I feel like I'm just getting old. I'm like, I just can't cut back the way I used to get my cutbacks. I can't get up off the top. He's like, what boards are you writing? And I explained to him the boards I'm writing. He's like, you, you have too much nose rocker and not enough tail rocker. I'm like, oh, he's like, here, you need a board more like this. And he shaped me a board. I'm like, oh, I felt young again. And the other wow. one I'm surfing is um, Bruce Fowler. Which for me is been super fun because I'm older, I'm a little resistant to change, so I like riding my standard tri fins that I've always rode. That may might look very similar, but be different, a little bit different on the rocker and fin systems. But these boards are basically flat and wide, and have a tail that's this wide, and I ride They're all I ride them as quads, and. I feel like they paddle like longboards and surf like shortboards. They're so much fun. Good. Yeah.
1: I've had a number of friends who swear by MBs and ride them for life, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, and I feel like early, I don't know, 20 years ago, I saw a lot of them in the water Mm -hmm. and I haven't in the last 20 years, but there are still like these steadfast uh, supporters. Yeah. You know. I I can't
0: say enough good things about... Good. Uh, his boards and him as a person I, I really enjoy our interaction now and the way he listens and tailors his boards like for the script to Tavi, I'm like you know I mean I want basically the same boards with another couple leaders in them because I'm, I'm getting older and better and uh, he listened and, and maybe two new boards and they were great
1: good um Final question is nothing to do with surfing. You mentioned your parents being Irish immigrants. Uh, Have you seen the film Belfast yet?
0: No, I haven't, but I'm interested to to see it because I know many people who lived through that conflict. And I have gone to Ireland almost every year since the year I was born. And I have been in and around that conflict a number of times, like actually dangerously close on a number of occasions. Uh, when i was
1: younger it's it's an incredible film it was so beautiful oh yeah you've seen it
0: didn't it just come
1: out yeah it did um i watched it last weekend um i've been trying to like go through the oscar nominations Mm -hmm. and watch one a week or something right and that one to me stood there and a number of them are really really good Mm -hmm. that one within 30 minutes i was like bang, this is the winner. This wow. is the best picture of the year. It and is, And it's pretty
0: relevant stunning. to today. I mean, talk about a divided society of, of like-minded people. It's
1: yep. bizarre. It really is bizarre. Like having more in common, but far more in common than you have uh, you know, in disagreement yeah. and then choosing that tiny disagreement yeah. to kill each other over.
0: Yeah. And again, I know quite a number of people that were caught up deeply in that conflict of yeah. um, older relatives and friends that uh, hearing their stories firsthand. I mean, it was just awful.
1: Well, this the film does a great job of telling a lot of different sides of the conflict, mm-hmm. but all through the eyes of just a young boy who's so innocent that there's no way to even understand why humans become this cynical and conflicted, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's really, really beautiful.
0: Oh, good. Well, thanks for the tip on that. I look forward to uh, watching it.
1: Gladly. I really appreciate you taking the time to fill us all in. It's a fascinating yeah, story. It's,
0: a, it's been a really fun ride. And congratulations on a, what I see is already a good successful run.
1: Thanks, man. Yeah, we started uh, 2013. So we've been in since the earliest of days.
0: You're right. Those are early podcast days.
1: Dude, there was so few. Scott. So Scott Bass was the only other guy who had produced any surf content, uh, in the podcast world. Cause he was doing one for surfer magazine. Mm-hmm. And I was like, this can be my little gift back to surfing essentially. Um, not, not envisioning that there would be any business model or anything. Right. And that's all developed since then, but it was yeah. all just kind of, if 20 people are willing to listen, then that'll I'm be worth so it. So
0: sad know? to see the magazines just kind of go the way they've gone because They were so helpful, as I mentioned before, to me in the early days. I would spend a lot of time in the offices down there and the environment in the offices down there was so fun. Those were all surfers putting together a magazine and they were joking around and it kind of came across like a group of idiots, even though I know they weren't, (laughs) you know, they all had their educational backgrounds in what they were doing, but they were just having so much fun. I'm like, how can this be a business? And again, they were just so helpful to me all the way from the photographers to the publishers and doing articles on us. And and uh, I don't know if you know that, you know, that the people who surf that end of every surfer magazine thing, they did that. on me And I think that was the second collector's issue, you know, that big issue they did. They did one of those on me and um, the advertisers would give me really preferential advertising rates which amazing you know it was like, hey don't tell anybody but of course you're kind of different than everybody else that we're dealing with and we know you're on a tight budget and this is kind of what you can do with us if we'll sign us up for you know eight times i'm like yeah let's let's do it yeah
1: surfboard surfboard shapers got that rate too i think
0: yeah i'm sure and the photographers i remember um jeff devine sitting down with him and tom survey and going through all their photos i went down there i said i need photos of these 15 destinations and you know those guys had photos of these destinations and we went through them all on light table and i put them in slide sheets and they said uh look you can get have these for 50 dollars a piece that you use. If you don't use them, you don't have to pay anything. Normally, if somebody uses those, we'll charge $500. If you lose them or damage them, you owe us $1,000 a piece for those slides. Wow. And I had a binder fully as I was driving with Volkswagen Rabbit and they were down in San Clemente and I was driving back up to LA and I was like, it was like, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars worth of slides. If I was to lose that binder, I was like, Oh my God, don't lose it. I'm going to stop him for tacos and carrying it in with me on the yeah. drive. I wouldn't leave it in the car and have it get stolen or have the slides melt in my car because it was so hot. And um, yeah, so that was really great. And then a long segue to that story. We recently moved offices and I was looking through all this old stuff, getting rid of it, and I found a slide sheet with like eight slides of Jeff Devines in the slide sheet from way back then when we first, when we produced our first, uh, it was after that trip, but when we produced our first uh, uh, brochure, uh, brochure. you know, we had a catalog. We produced a number of catalogs back in the print days. And I found them along with the note, like the IO that I had to sign was stapled to it. And it was like 20 years old. I'm like, oh my God, Jeff certainly doesn't know this exists anymore. What do I do? Do I give it back to him because there's obviously some great memories in there for him or do I just throw it away and pretend it never existed? And I sent it to Jeff and uh, I FedExed it to him with a gift card for a nice restaurant in his local community with the I'm sorry note. Wow. He He called me up. He's like, I had no idea these slides even existed. Thanks so much for sending them back. And he was just really appreciative and was not in any way disgruntled that I held on to his slides for 20 years.
1: That's amazing. What a gift for him. And that
0: happened like, I don't know, three months ago.
1: Crazy. I know. Crazy. Awesome. Well, thanks again for the story, Sean, and for taking the time.
0: Thank you. I I can't wait to to hear it. And uh, take care. And if you're ever going anywhere, let me know. We'll make sure we take care of you. Do you surf travel? I will for
1: sure. Oh, yeah. Well, I've got a five month old, so no, but yes, in general.
0: (laughs) It keeps you sane. You got to prioritize it. Okay. All right. Okay, I I will. All
1: right. Bye bye. Thanks. Bye. Sean Murphy, ladies and gentlemen, from Waterways Travel. I've seen Waterways advertising in surf magazines since the mid-90s, when I really first kind of discovered and got into surfing. And so really cool to be able to talk to Sean, hear his story. Um, I love somebody who's just passionate about exploration travel, but also I love a good business story. Somebody who's had to adapt, navigate, uh, pave roads, overcome obstacles and challenges, and to be able to be the leading business in a given space for decades on end is really no small feat. So congratulations to Waterways and it sounds like the whole team at Waterways that's been there for a long time, long time employees. So that says something as well. I just pulled up the destination tab on their website. I'll just, um, there's multiple destinations within each of these countries and regions but I'm just gonna read the countries and regions to you so you get an idea of where Waterways provides their service. Uh, Bali and g the Carolina Islands, Costa Rica, Ecuador, El Salvador, Fiji, Marshall Islands, Maldives, Mentawise, Mexico, Nicaragua, North Sumatra, Panama, Papua New Guinea, Peru, Roti and Timor, samoa and south africa and again within each of those there's anywhere from one to two or three to looks like six different accommodation options from yachts to um you know land camps and every level of comfort as well from small camps to more palatial, luxurious accommodations. So whatever your budget is, whatever the time of year is, Sean and his team at Waterways Travel can uh, get you dialed in. So tremendous service. And like I said in the opening, immeasurably influential in the surf world, especially through the 90s and 2000s. And then of course that stuff, that imprint of course uh, sticks with us forevermore. more. So, So thank you, Sean, for making this happen. And thank you listeners for all of your support. Of course, we have a roster of sponsors, but the foundation of our business is subscriber support. So you can support our work for $5 a month. And that is the backbone of our business. Advertising is inconsistent. It comes and goes. It really helps the business, but the subscriber $5 month bricks are the foundation of everything. It allows us to archive all of our episodes it allows us to forecast for the future and all of that so if you like our work and you want to hear more of it throughout the future and um, increased production in fact jump on and help fuel this mission on surfsplendorpodcast.com just navigate to the subscribe tab and you can also find a comment section on every show's page feel free to leave a comment i'll make sure that sean or whatever the guest is uh, receives those comments and then also another way you can support is by rating and reviewing the show in iTunes because that helps strangers find it. If they go in there and they just search the word surf, that will ensure that ours pops up. Whoever has the most reviews and ratings is who they prioritize. So help strangers find our work there. All right. Scott Bass and I just dropped an episode of Spit this week. And then Chas Smith and I are getting together tomorrow for an episode of The Grit. Lots of stuff going on for us to discuss there. And um, I'll be back here with an all new episode of Surf Splendor next week. So until then, this is, of course, David Scales reminding you to take some time away from work, away from podcasts, away from everything. Take some time for yourself. Get back into the ocean, share some waves, and of course, shred on